Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. President Biden was inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States on Wednesday. It was a cold and briefly snowy day in Washington as Biden and Vice President Harris were sworn in at the U.S. Capitol building. But the moment was marked by reminders that our country's circumstances are far from normal. Attendees wore masks and the small number of guests were seated at a distance. Barricades lined the area around the Capitol, and thousands of National Guardsmen surrounded much of downtown Washington. In his speech, Biden acknowledged our country's challenges. It was a speech that captured a somber yet hopeful moment for many Americans. I know speaking of unity can sound to some like a foolish fantasy these days. I know the forces that divide us are deep and they are real. But I also know they are not new. Our history has been a constant struggle between the American ideal that we're all are created equal and the harsh, ugly reality that racism, nativism, fear, demonization have long torn us apart. The battle is perennial and victory is never assured. Through civil war, the Great Depression, World War, 9-11, through struggle, sacrifice, and setbacks, our better angels have always prevailed. The new president is inheriting a country facing real, serious challenges. Institutions have been weakened. The country is more divided than ever. The ways we measure and understand political sentiment are flawed. And misinformation and disinformation have become powerful pieces of the national discourse. That's a tall order for any administration. Yet Biden and his team have vowed to move our nation forward. Biden campaigned on a promise to fix what's broken, to repair divisions, to pull this country out of sickness, and to restore some of the norms and institutions that were pillars of the Washington in which he built his career. He even promised this again in his inaugural speech. We can do this if we open our souls instead of hardening our hearts, if we show a little tolerance and humility, and if we're willing to stand in the other person's shoes, as my mom would say, just for a moment, stand in their shoes, we'll deal you. But can he do that? Does he have the power, the ability, or even the will to set the country on a real path toward unity? This is season two of Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. On this new season, each episode will probe important questions to help us understand whether Biden's presidency will heal some of the nation's wounds or fail. 
we'll keep offering the kinds of answers you've come to depend on from this show. Insight into how our government works, context to make sense of ongoing events, and implications of political news when so much about the country's politics is unlike anything we've seen before. But we'll also widen our lens, looking at how we move forward as a country, what the role of government will be in bringing us out of crisis, and where Biden fits in. And of course, whenever you find yourself asking, can he do that? We'll be there. A few weeks ago, back in December, we asked you, our listeners, to leave us voicemails sharing your hopes and fears for the new administration. And we got a lot of responses. Some of you said you were hopeful for the days ahead. Others were deeply worried the country would fail to unite and afraid that our divisions were too strong and too hard to overcome. My biggest hope for the Biden administration is this. It is selflessness. He seems to passionately believe in the role of government in the society and what it can do. And I trust Joe Biden and his administration to work selflessly. I would like to see some type of policy or law put in place that requires the chambers to negotiate and actually talk to each other and not just refuse to work together. My greatest hope for the next administration is that they learn to compromise. This country will not exist without compromise. My greatest fear is that there won't be compromise and there will be retribution, which doesn't serve anybody. My greatest hope is that we can change systems and legislation so that we cannot place a man like um, President Trump in the presidency role again. My biggest fear is that without somebody like Donald Trump constantly instigating and antagonizing people every day, that a lot of people sort of fall into a complacency, a sense of normalcy after so many injustices have been exposed and decide that it's it's some things just really aren't worth fighting anymore. We collected your responses, as I said, back in December. That was weeks before the events at the Capitol on January 6th when a pro-Trump mob attacked the building in an attempt to overturn the election results. Since then, the tone of our politics has grown even more intense. And the test on our democracy has evoked passions across the aisle. Some Republicans who had previously stayed silent or even supported President Trump's claims of voter fraud came out in opposition to his efforts and even accused their colleagues of inciting violence. And Democrats took immediate action to impeach Trump, marking a historic second impeachment of a U.S. president. So after all that news, we thought our listeners might have more to say. Our show's producer, Arjun Singh, followed up with some of our listeners who had reached out the first time. Hey, can you hear me? I can. Hey, how you doing? Arjun reconnected with these listeners about their hopes and fears for the next four years. My name is Mario Rosa. I come from San Juan, Puerto Rico, and I currently reside in Davenport, Florida. Mario shared his fears of Biden struggling to govern with so much anger still present among Trump supporters. How many Republicans right now believe that the election was held fairly? So in the near future, I honestly think people underestimate just how much work Biden administration has been to have to do in order to calm those passions. And I think without Trump, we'll still have to face this. This is not something that can be solved from one day to another. It is too large time. My hope is that without Trump, it'll be an easier process. It's still going to be hard. It's still going to be long. But without the constant tweets 
honestly thought that he wasn't going to get deplatformed and he was still going to have a voice. And having a voice enables him to keep to still keep those passions running in his base. Now that he's been deplatformed, my hope is that while we still have issues that we have to deal with, we won't have Trump being a constant presence over us and over our lives. I would say I'm even more concerned about how our country has become red and blue as opposed to red, white, and blue. Jenny Messner lives in Atlanta, Georgia. It's starting to occur to me that some of the biggest divisions we're dealing with are not international, they're within our own borders. Her hopes for the Biden administration were tempered after the riots at the Capitol. I wish I could say that I still believe that he would be a calming bomb that would cloak our country and calm everything down. Now I'm not sure. It really worries me that so many people are so convinced Biden didn't win. I'm worried about how easy it became to follow a leader who was telling lies. That really worries me. I don't know how to fix that. I'm as anxious as I've ever been in my adult life. I've had my first inoculation, my first vaccination. I worry that the supply won't be there for the second dose. I worry about people who don't have access to the vaccinations at all. I'm about as burnt out as any well-informed American can be. I think we're, we're all toast. So we need to call this ground zero and we need to build from here. When Joe Biden got elected, I think there is this sort of sense of like a reductionist quality to politics where they have the sigh of relief. They, you know, finally, this is all done. That's Will Walker from Philadelphia. I don't want to, you know, preemptively be pessimistic about the whole thing, but there is still very much so a desire that it's all behind us and it's really not, you know. I just saw somebody say, you know, this isn't fixed. America just finally got to the hospital. You know what I mean? If we were in a car accident, we're actually just finally making it to the hospital. It's going to be a long road to healing and recovery from here. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Overwhelmingly, this is what we heard from our listeners. Fears about the state of division in our country and tepid hope about how we recover and how we come out of this. I want to note that this isn't a sampling of the whole country, only a small group of Can He Do That listeners. But among them, the message was clear. We are divided. Can President Biden really bring us together? Biden has been kind of relentlessly optimistic about being able to change the tenor of political discourse. And I mean, it's always been an open question. And I think People are right to be skeptical, and I think there is a lot of reasons to be skeptical. Matt Viser is a White House reporter for The Washington Post. He spent the past two years closely covering the Biden campaign. But I think on Inauguration Day, you saw a little bit of a shift. How lasting that shift is going to be is going to be the major enduring question for the Biden presidency. So it's very much an open question as to how or whether he'll be able to do it. But I think that that is the 
chief thing that he's going to be trying to do. And to the point of the chief thing, at this point, do you have an idea what legislative effort Biden is going to push for the hardest in the sense that Obama had health care and Trump had his wall? What's the legislative item or the really big thing that Biden will be relentless about when he has two branches of government? So the first thing is going to be the COVID relief package. And this is the $1.9 trillion package that he has outlined in the days leading up to the inauguration. So he's filed that legislation that I think will be the major push over the next couple of weeks, which is really the honeymoon phase, right? But soon after that, he's going to file another kind of large piece of legislation. We don't have a full figure on what that's going to cost, but it's what he's looked at as kind of a rebuilding piece of legislation that will be kind of geared at the same thing, but could be fulfilling other campaign pledges about student debt relief and other things that I think were on sort of a wish list for a Biden presidency. So I really do think probably over the first 100 days, it's going to be coronavirus related. He did also file, though, on his first day, an immigration package, a pretty comprehensive look at immigration. And so that would provide a pathway to citizenship for 11 million undocumented immigrants. And I think that that's going to be another push that he's going to make, which quite frankly, was another point of debate at the start of the Obama administration was how aggressively to push on immigration. They decided to wait until the second term and it didn't go through. So I think Biden will also make immigration a core issue, but probably further down the road. I think coronavirus is the thing that they're most focused on. And you mentioned the Biden sort of wish list. What are the things that maybe aren't being as broadly reported about what's on that wish list of his? You know, this has been reported some, but the climate change aspect that will have its kind of tentacles in all fashions of government, you tend to think of climate change from a broader, larger policy front, but really they're focused on like all administrative actions taking into account attempts to address climate change. So he got back into the Paris Climate Accords on Inauguration Day. And I think that they're going to make a government-wide and global-wide effort to address climate change. So with all of those things on his agenda, he signed a whole bunch of executive orders on Wednesday. What are the most notable things there that have the biggest implications from that bunch of executive orders? You know, it's kind of interesting where thinking back four years ago, it was sort of head snapping for a lot of people. Trump represented something totally new to American politics. I mean, on the first day, Biden was undoing a lot of Trump and what Trump did. And it's just as head snapping. There's 17 different executive actions. One of them was repealing the ban on travel from Muslim majority countries. The Paris Climate Accords was another thing that Trump got out of relatively quickly in his term. Biden's back in that. The World Health Organization Trump was trying to get out of that, and Biden is getting back in it. And in fact, the morning after the inauguration, Dr. Fauci participated at 4 a.m. Eastern in a World Health Organization meeting. So there are already sort of things that are happening and going into place where it's largely a rescinding of what Trump was doing. And we're not yet seeing as much sort of proactive about what Biden wants to do differently other than get rid of what Trump did. Yeah. And executive orders are an interesting way to do it because, you know, President Obama actually used them pretty often and Trump really relied on them for a lot of his initiatives. 
That unilateral approach to governing has historically gotten a lot of criticism. But now Biden is coming in and just asserting his power through executive orders. So why? Why is he choosing to take that approach? It's interesting. And it's been a part of debate among a lot of Democrats and allies of Biden of how aggressively to go after executive action, because it's a quick fix, but it's not an enduring fix for changes. It doesn't write it into law. It can be changed just as quickly four years from now if Biden loses. So I think that they see the advantage to doing that early and then moving toward more legislative fixes. The immigration reform, for example, some of the stuff that Biden's doing right away involves Dreamers and DACA. And, you know, I think that there's an open question of how that's going to go. You know, is he going to find worthwhile partners in this deeply divided Congress? Democrats have a majority, but it's the thinnest of majorities in both chambers. And so can Biden push through significant legislation and can he find partners to, to do so? Right. And Biden's this man who really believes in Congress and in unity. And he said that he'll take the approach of bringing others on board. And yet there was some contrast in that message when he comes straight out of the gate with a lot of unilateral action. So it will be notable, as you say, to see what happens when he tries to push his legislative agenda a bit more. There was an interesting moment right after his inauguration where they're presenting him with these flags that flew over the Capitol. And you can see a little bit of the warmth between McConnell and Biden. They're joking about, you know, how long Biden was in the Senate and that he's a Senate guy. That's certainly part of Biden's persona. And, you know, I think whether these relationships will translate into actual legislation and making kind of sweeping changes and what kind of president he's going to be. Because his inauguration had a lot of symbolism. There was a lot of symbolism in the transfer of power, a lot of symbolism with it moving away from what Trump represented and toward what Biden represents, I think is a pretty big deal. But the nuts and bolts of it are what they now need to get down to. And those changes, I think, are going to be more interesting to watch, whether Biden can do it and can do it successfully. Moving away from the Trump era into the Biden era, we're seeing this change in tone. It's worth noting that Trump changed the presidency itself in a lot of ways. And one of those ways is that he used it to really thin out the federal workforce. He appointed acting everythings. Have we seen any evidence so far that Biden plans to build out the government again? Or is this an incredibly difficult thing to do? Can he rebuild the workforce? So they have been trying to recruit people back into the government workforce who left, you know, because they were sort of disenchanted or morale was pretty low under Trump. So I do think Biden will try to rebuild both in numbers and in the morale of the federal government bureaucracy. You know, they're putting some acting people in place. I don't think that they're using it as much as the way that Trump did to avoid confirmation battles. For Biden, it's a recognition that the Senate hasn't confirmed some people that he needed at the start. So I don't think that his acting officials are intending to be there for months and months. And there are some parts of the office he's inheriting that are harder to undo in a lot of ways. For example, the ways that Trump undermined our own U.S. intelligence agencies or politicized the military or the courts. Have we seen any effort or plans from the Biden team to really undo any potential harms that were caused from these rhetorical broken norms, the way that Trump sort of spoke about these parts of our government? So Biden, in the afternoon after the inauguration, had a ceremony for about a thousand new appointees into his administration. And he had this interesting moment where he addressed them. And he said that if he hears anybody disparaging one another, talking down against or denigrating a colleague, he will fire them on the spot. No questions, no ifs, ands, or buts. I mean, it was the clearest statement that he sort of had in this kind of brief and relatively formulaic 
swearing in ceremony. But he said, in fact, that there's been too much of that over the last four years and we need to change that. And so I think at the moment it's rhetorical, but it's rhetorical coming from the top. I think Biden is trying to reinstill this kind of pride in being a federal government worker and being an administration employee and try to as much as he can dispel the sort of infighting that marked the last four years in the Trump administration. So on the flip side of that, we just talked about how Biden is trying to undo some of the norms that President Trump broke. But are there ways that the Biden administration will use any of Trump's norm breaking to help them move their agenda forward? Are there things that we've seen yet where Biden is embracing what was really a broken norm by Trump? It was interesting yesterday, Biden inherited the POTUS Twitter handle. And so he had a couple of tweets and you're getting a sense of how he may communicate. It was using Twitter certainly differently than Trump did. There were no all caps, you know, everything was spelled correctly. It was not the way that Trump uses Twitter, but I think that Biden, in trying to figure out how to communicate with the American public on a regular basis, might take some cues from how Trump did. Trump was pretty ubiquitous in American life and was kind of hard for people to look away from. I don't think Biden will be to that extreme, But I do think that he wants to capture the attention of the public. And Trump was able to do that through social media, which Biden and the incoming White House kind of recognizes. And they're already starting to sort of try to use different ways to drive their message. So here's a big question that I have. I'm not sure if you can answer it, but we'll give it a shot. Biden talks so often about unity, about bringing the country together. And it's clear right now what disunity looks like, what a fractured country looks like. But how will we measure whether Biden ends up being successful at this goal of bringing unity? What does unity look like? There's certain, I think, images that we're used to, to feeling like they give us a sense of unity. You know, like I think Biden relatively soon will have all of the congressional leaders over to the White House for an in-person meeting, which is something we haven't seen quite that often in the past few years. We haven't really seen much bipartisan legislation, things that pass just overwhelmingly. So I think if we start to see things that have 80 votes in the Senate and you start to see leaders together and kind of getting along in a sense, I mean, that would, I think, give us at least a sense of unity. But I still think a lot of that is symbolic. A lot of that is for show and that you see it, but underlining it, I think there's still a lot of discord. And I think it's a hard one to answer. Unity, you tend to think of leaders standing together. And you haven't seen that in a long time of kind of people actually coming together and working together for something that seems overarching through the country or having a moment where everybody sort of marks it as an American. Even the 4th of July under Trump was oftentimes not fully celebrated together. You know, people would sort of roll their eyes about the things that Trump wanted to do to mark the occasion. And I don't know, you know, this 4th of July, what Biden will try to do and whether people will want to celebrate it together. His first thing when he came to Washington was the COVID memorial service, which we have not had, you know, for nearly a year, have not had a moment to sort of mark the people who've died from the coronavirus. And so I think Biden is trying to do those things as a way to create a collective coming together to have a similar shared experience that we often don't have these days. Yeah, I think that over the Biden administration, I hope that we will explore on this show how some of those things actually affect the American people and whether or not we do see unity around the country. So my last question to you, Matt, is... 
I think Democrats and a lot of Americans are expecting and hoping to see a lot of change very quickly. We're in a bad place in this country. They want to come out of it very quickly. Are Biden's policies and his actions putting him in a position to, to bring about expedient change? Or really are the realities of governing just that it takes time and that change doesn't come very easily? I think it's a little both. I think they're very much trying to signal, and you'll see over the next 10 days, kind of a drumbeat of things that Biden is doing or trying to change or trying to put in place that signal activity and change. But he's also simultaneously kind of signaling that this is going to be hard. You know, it's going to take time. He's kind of preparing people for, you know, the vaccine is here, but it's going to be a long winter and, and people need to be prepared uh, for a lot more tragedy to occur. So I do think you'll see some things initially, but for those big sweepy kind of things to get into place, I think it might take a while for major policies to change. So the short answer is I think initially a lot of things will happen and it'll seem like a lot of activity, but I think the longer term stuff, the more lasting stuff will take a lot more time. All right. Well, we will pay attention to all of those moves. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Just one more thing before you go. This is an unprecedented moment in American history. And in times like these, I am so grateful for my colleagues at The Post. Our reporters work around the clock to uncover stories that are really shaping our lives and to bring context to the historic events that are happening around us. Their reporting is what drives this podcast. And truly, it would not be possible without subscriber support. For the reporting that goes into it, the best way to do so is through a subscription to The Washington Post. A subscription gets you unlimited access to everything we publish, from breaking news to baking tips. For a limited time, listeners can get two years of access for just $59. This is an offer exclusive to podcast listeners, and it's less than $1 a week. Learn more and subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. That's WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I hope you'll consider it, and thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh with production help this week from Bishop Sand, new logo art by Greg Manifold, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 